You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The January 6th committee continues to build its case that former President Donald Trump instigated the violence at the Capitol. This week, we heard from Trump insiders like former Attorney General William Barr that Trump was not interested in hearing the facts about his false claims of election fraud. When I went into this and would, you know, tell them how crazy some of these allegations were. There was never there was never an indication of interest in what the actual facts were. Attorney General Merrick Garland says he and the Justice Department are listening to the hearings, but the question is whether they'll act on them. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. The committee is obviously laying out a roadmap for prosecuting former President Trump. Do you think the evidence presented so far provides the basis for potential criminal charges? So, June, let me say, first of all, there's been a notable change in tone from the committee members. If you think back a few weeks and months ago, whenever they were asked about, are you trying to encourage or pressure prosecutors to bring charges, they would always sort of demur. They would say, well, it's not up to us. Now they are openly talking about illegality and conspiracy. So there's no question to me that they're trying to send a message here to prosecutors. Is there enough to prosecute? That's a complicated question. I think that there is a compelling foundation being laid that Donald Trump and others had potentially criminal intent and that the intent was to obstruct Congress and potentially to defraud the United States. Now, I don't usually like to use so many hedge words, potential, potential, but let me tell you why I'm doing that. We should not look at these committee hearings and assume that everything we're seeing would translate over one-to-one to a criminal prosecution because they are two very different ballgames. And some of the evidence that the committee is playing would not be admissible in a trial. And there's no defense lawyers. There's no cross-examination at the committee. So I think we need to keep that in mind that this is sort of the committee having the floor all to itself. But a criminal trial is very different. A prosecutor has to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. And of course, the accused, the defendant, would have a zealous defense. So I'm reluctant to draw a straight, yes, this can be prosecuted and convicted just based on what the committee has done so far. 
what are some of the possible crimes that could be charged? Not saying that they will be charged, but what are some of the possible crimes you see? Well, I see three big ones if we're talking about with respect to Donald Trump or other powerful people. The first one is conspiracy to defraud the United States. Now, normally that means to steal money from the United States, but legally it does not have to be a financial loss. It can be to deprive the United States of a fair election. In fact, Robert Mueller charged some of the Russian nationals who interfered with the 2016 election under that theory. The second big one I see is an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding. Here, the official proceeding is the counting of the electoral votes by Congress. And the argument would be that Trump or potentially this lawyer, John Eastman, had corrupt intent. They knew what they were doing was wrong. And they still tried to block, essentially, Mike Pence from counting the votes. And then the third one, the most dramatic charge would be seditious conspiracy, which is essentially the same thing as trying to obstruct a proceeding only with an element of use of force. So you would need to tie the person to the physical force that we use to break into the Capitol. I don't see any evidence establishing that link to Donald Trump at the moment. But DOJ has charged various members and leaders of the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys with that. And if you can show that anybody else was involved with that use of force, then you could charge that crime as well. Prosecutors, of course, have to believe that they can prove their case to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. What else goes into a charging decision? That's issue number one. You have to believe that you can prove your case to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. You want to look at the equities of it. You want to look at, is this a fair and righteous prosecution? And I think the big question here is, how do you take into account the fact that this is a former president and an indictment of him will cause all manner of protest and perhaps worse than that. We've heard Trump sort of rally his followers. Oh, if they indict me, we're going to have civil unrest. Um, I'm paraphrasing what he said. You know, DOJ internal guidance, and this is public, tells prosecutors you're not to consider that kind of thing. You're not to consider whether a person is politically popular or unpopular in whether to charge them. But I do think as a practical matter, June, I assure you prosecutors are cognizant of the fact that if they do charge Donald Trump, it will be unlike any prosecution in prior United States history, and it will be uniquely fraught and uniquely difficult. Yeah, because we hear Attorney General Merrick Garland say over and over that, you know, we'll go wherever the evidence leads us. But if the evidence does lead to Donald Trump, one wonders if they'll be, you know, wary of breaking the norm against indicting former presidents and also of the division that it will likely cause in the country. Here's my response to what we've seen from Merrick Garland. Two things I can say for sure. Number one, this idea of we're going to start at the ground level and build up, which he says over and over, that's not really true. That's not really how good prosecutors build their cases. I can't tell you how many times I had evidence that led me right to a powerful person. I used to do mob cases. I had evidence where I would go, wow, okay, great. I have a shot at the boss here. I have a shot at a capo here. I wouldn't stop and go, okay, hold on. Let me go start with the low-level guys on the street and see if I can flip them and see if then I can flip those guys and get back up to the top. So that, to me, is not really an accurate view of what good prosecutors do or ought to do. The other thing that I think is sort of indisputable about Merrick Garland, you know, there's a lot of will here, won't he? What I think is beyond dispute is this is taking too long. I mean, we are a year and a half out from January 6th at this point. Garland came in in March, so he's been there 16 months at this point. But if this is a crime by Donald Trump and others, it is the greatest crime ever committed against our democracy. And to take this long and counting to charge it, I think, is not at all commensurate with the seriousness of the crime that we're talking about or of the ongoing threat. And the thing is, if Garland doesn't charge this by the end of the summer, 
DOJ policy says you don't charge a big political case within 60 days or 90 days. People sort of vary on what the number is before an election. So if we don't see Merrick Garland charging Donald Trump or anyone around him by August, and I don't think anyone realistically thinks that's going to happen, now we're talking end of 2022, early 2023. We're talking two full years out, by which time Donald Trump may well have declared his candidacy for 2024. And if he does that, he will become immediately the prohibitive Republican frontrunner, which I think makes it even more difficult as a practical measure to charge him. Thanks, Ellie. That's former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. The January 6th committee explored former Vice President Mike Pence's decision not to violate the Constitution by ignoring the votes of states offering fake or alternate boards of electors. Pence's former general counsel, Greg Jacob, testified that the vice president was clear from the outset that obeying Trump's wishes would have been unconstitutional. The vice president's first instinct on that point, there is no a justifiable basis to conclude that the vice president has that kind of authority. Joining me is Bloomberg Law team leader, Christopher Opfer. Chris, tell us about what happened to Greg Jacob on January 6th. Sure. So at the time, uh, Jacob was serving as chief counsel to Mike Pence. And of course, Pence and his top staffers were there at the Capitol preparing to go through the machinations of certifying the vote. And at this point, certainly Pence and his staff, including Jacob, were aware uh, of the crowd gathering outside and and were aware of the back and forth, particularly from various Trump supporters urging Pence to do something to overturn the election results. But it wasn't until uh, Jacob went downstairs into the bowels of the Capitol with a couple of the staffers to actually get a cup of coffee that he heard, you know, the mob outside storming the Capitol. He, he literally heard glass breaking and, and people filing in. And that's when he and the others hustled back upstairs. They were ushered by Capitol Police and Secret Service to the Senate floor at first, and then they were taken to a secure location with Pence, his wife, Pence's brother, who's a Republican congressman, and others. And they, they really hunkered down there for the next six hours or so uh, as the mob funneled in. So as he was being shuffled from the Senate floor to the uh, secure location, Jacob fired off an email to Eastman. And the backstory there is that over the last two days leading up to the the Capitol riot on January 6th, he and Eastman had been having this ongoing back and forth, debating the merits of Eastman's argument in which Eastman was trying to convince Pence to step in and overturn the election. Those arguments had been rejected. Roundly, and and once the mob had had forced its way into the Capitol, and Jacob is being shuffled off. First, he's fielding frantic text messages from family members and his pastor about, "Are you all right? Are you safe?" He takes this moment to fire off an email to Eastman, which says something to the effect of, "We are now under siege, and this is all thanks to your BS." So, how did he become? Pence's top lawyer since his background is employment benefits law. It's a really unlikely story. It's not something that Jacob had in mind for sure, uh, certainly not when Trump and Pence were elected and, and not even, you know, probably midway into the, the four years of the Trump administration. 
He is an employment lawyer by trade. He is an expert in ERISA, which is this very wonky but also complicated and and incredibly important federal law that governs employee pension plans, retirement benefits, etc. He's been in and out of government in Republican administration. He's had some top roles at the Labor Department. Earlier in his career, uh, he had worked at the DOJ in the Office of Legal Counsel. So he did have some experience and expertise outside of the labor and employment world, but that was certainly his bread and butter. And in fact, Jacob, you know, once Trump was elected, had his eyes on a return to the Labor Department and was really focused there. And for a number of reasons, that fell through. He had made some connections with the Pence folks because Jacob had been recruited by A.B. Culbehouse, who's a longtime GOP lawyer, to work on this team that was actually vetting VP candidates for Trump. And so that's how he had come into Pence's orbit in the first place. Pence's longtime chief counsel, a guy named Matt Morgan, had decided he needed to go back to Indiana for family reasons. And when they went looking for somebody, it was suggested that they take a look at Jacob. And so that although there was some familiarity, this was not a guy who was like a longtime Pence guy, Pence supporter or anything like that. But on the other hand, they really did jibe pretty well, it sounds like, from from everyone involved. Sort of a similar worldview, very conservative, also a very um, devout Christian, which, of course, uh, Mike Pence and his family are as well. Now, what is his connection to Eastman? It's interesting. These are two guys that are sort of cut from the same cloth in many ways. They went to the same law school at different times. They've been running in GOP lawyer circles for decades, but they had never actually met until two days before the riot. And that was when Eastman came in. He had been hired by Trump to come in and and work on some of the election issues. And it was on January 4th that he started reaching out to the Pence folks, including Greg Jacob, pitching this argument, which was basically that Pence could decertify the vote or send the vote back to certain states and six to eight states, including places like Michigan and Arizona, where Trump supporters had been arguing that there was, you know, reason to take another look at those states on the one hand, or that he could just simply effectively wave a magic wand and say that Trump is going to remain president. And he laid this out in detail in a memo that has become public as part of the hearing proceedings. He also laid it out in a series of emails that have become public since then. And now this chain of emails on January 6th between Jacob and Eastman have also become public. You write that friends and colleagues call him humble, careful, under the radar, not exactly Mr. Social. This is a guy, by all accounts, who's not sought the spotlight and somebody who is just super smart, super well-respected in D.C. and could have gone for a more public-facing position had he thought that. And it's just not something that he personally has gone after. And I get the sense that, you know, if you left it up to Greg Jacob, he would rather not be going before the House committee in a, a televised event before the world. Uh, he's he's a low-key guy. You know, I think from his position, he's already sat for closed-door testimony with the committee there. But on the other hand, here's someone who people close to him say believes in the rule of law. And, and certainly by the time the mob was storming the Capitol, it became clear to Jacob that this was of Trump's own doing and of Trump supporters' own doing, and, and that Eastman in particular, according to Jacob, should 
shoulder some of the blame for spewing this narrative that somehow Trump was going to be able to remain in office. And I think for him, it's more of a rule of law, patriotism type of thing here where he feels like, you know, this is something where he has to step up and, you know, explain what happened. Thanks, Chris. That's Christopher Opfer of Bloomberg Law. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The Supreme Court sided with a Southwest Airlines baggage handling supervisor who was trying to avoid having to go to arbitration with her claims for overtime pay. In a unanimous opinion, the justices said the supervisor isn't covered by the Federal Arbitration Act, which requires the enforcement of agreements to take claims to arbitration rather than to trial. In the majority opinion, Justice Clarence Thomas said the supervisor qualified for an exception in the law for workers engaged in foreign or interstate commerce. Joining me is Mark Rifkin, a partner at Wolf Haldenstein. This is the second time in two weeks that the court has shot down a company's attempt to force an employee into arbitration rather than going to trial. And a unanimous decision, is that surprising to you? No, I don't think so. I I think that the first decision in the case involving the worker who was trying to invoke waiver as a defense to arbitration was a straightforward application of the principle that arbitration should be put on the same footing as every other contract. And then the Southwest Airlines case, the second case, is again just a straightforward application of simple definitions and principles that you can find in Black's Law Dictionary. And so I think in the in that vein, they're both simple, straightforward applications of basic fundamental principles to arbitration agreements. So tell us about the facts here. 
So the plaintiff in the Southwest Airlines case was a ramp supervisor, and part of her job included helping the ramp workers load baggage and airmail and cargo on and off airplanes that obviously travel across the country and presumably internationally as well. And the question is whether those workers who are involved in that kind of work belong to a class of workers engaged in foreign or interstate commerce because the Federal Arbitration Act exempts those workers from the protection of the FAA. They they can't be compelled to arbitrate. And so the question is, do those baggage handlers fall within that class of workers? It seems obvious what her argument would be. What was the argument of Southwest as to why she shouldn't fall under this exemption? So Southwest Airlines said that the airline is engaged in interstate commerce. But the workers at the airport who who don't themselves travel across state lines or across international lines, that the workers are not engaged in interstate commerce, even though they work for a company that is. And and the question that the Supreme Court uh, addressed is whether those workers who are part of that effort of commerce are themselves engaged in foreign or interstate commerce, even though they work within one state rather than traveling interstate or internationally. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote the majority opinion. Explain his reasoning. Well, it's a unanimous decision. So so all the judges um, who participated in the decision agreed, and uh, Justice Barrett did not part- participate, but everybody who participated agreed. And Justice Thomas, writing for the court, said that um, if we look at how Black's Law Dictionary defines the words engaged and commerce, then we conclude that um, anyone is engaged in commerce who is occupied in it, employed in it, or involved in it. And the court took a very broad approach to applying that definition. And since the ramp supervisors who actually handle the cargo are certainly involved in interstate commerce. The court said, well, they fall within that class of workers who are exempt under Section 1 of the Federal Arbitration Act. I love when they go to the dictionary <laughs> to decide a, <laughs> decide a case of national importance. Well, you would think if a case was complicated enough and important enough to be adjudicated by the Supreme Court, it should require some more sophisticated analysis than looking in the dictionary. But here, the dictionary helped. And so Justice Thomas looked in the dictionary and saw the how those terms were interpreted and uh, said, works for us. Uber, Lyft, and Amazon all filed briefs backing Southwest. What are the implications for those workers? Well, I think the principle is is fairly well established now. If you work in an industry that participates in either interstate or international commerce, and so, for example, Amazon plainly participates in interstate and international commerce. If you work for a company that does that and your job is closely enough tied to that commerce, then the same rationale would apply to that worker as as applied to Saxon in the Southwest Airlines case. Now, not everybody who works for Southwest Airlines would fall within the court's rationale. So I could imagine 
an accountant who works for Southwest Airlines, I can imagine that a court would say, well, that person is not engaged in interstate or international commerce. But, you know, obviously, if a baggage handler is engaged in interstate or international commerce, a flight attendant is engaged in interstate or international commerce, and presumably others as well, even though their jobs don't cross state lines or international lines, still could be engaged in interstate commerce within the meaning of the Supreme Court's decision here. I want you to tell me what you think Southwest is saying here. They said, because non-union employees rarely handle cargo on a regular basis, Southwest will continue to rely on the Federal Arbitration Act to enforce its arbitration program in the future. Are they saying they're not going to pay attention to the Supreme Court? Well, I think they're trying to look for a loophole around through the Supreme Court's decision. They, they conceded in the case that at least Saxon, this ramp supervisor, that a significant part of her job was to transport cargo, that she helped the ramp workers by frequently loading and unloading cargo. So because Southwest conceded the issue there, they're now looking for a way to distinguish some other kinds of workers from Saxon. And and I guess the way they're trying to do that is the extent to which any particular worker actually handles baggage or cargo or whatever it may be that gets loaded and unloaded from, from airplanes. Um, you know, the, these are the kinds of gray lines that courts often have to draw. And I guess in the next case, brought by a Southwest Airlines employee who doesn't handle as much baggage as Saxon did, maybe the court would find that that person falls outside the exemption. But that's another case for another day. We've talked about the Supreme Court and arbitration before. Before these two cases, has the Supreme Court been interpreting arbitration in ways that are favorable to businesses for the most part? Well, I think the Supreme Court's approach to arbitration has been favorable to business. The FAA says you can't disfavor arbitration. And that was the rationale for the Morgan versus Sundance opinion that Justice Kagan wrote, is that arbitration agreements have to be on exactly the same footing as all other contracts. And so in that case, in Morgan versus Sundance, the Supreme Court said you can't favor arbitration by creating an artificial barrier to a waiver defense that doesn't exist to the defense of any other contractual right. And so when the Sixth Circuit imposed this uh, additional requirement of prejudice to the defendant who was trying to enforce arbitration after litigating a case for some prolonged period of time, the Supreme Court said, you've waived that right whether you're prejudiced by by the the inability to uh, arbitrate or not. And so the court now says, you know, equal footing means equal footing both ways. But the reason that the approach to arbitration favors business is because it's an expansion of what the FAA really was created to do. You know, decades ago, federal courts were very unwilling to enforce arbitration agreements between sophisticated commercial parties, which is primarily where arbitration agreements were found. And when two big companies decide they want to arbitrate their disputes, 
they're able to make a decision and negotiate over whether to include a provision like that or not include a provision like that in the contract. And so it really does make sense to say that arbitration is a matter of mutual consent between the parties, and we're going to treat that a decision to arbitrate an agreement to arbitrate like any other agreement that we routinely have to enforce. But today, businesses impose these arbitration agreements on consumers who don't really have a choice and don't really have the opportunity to negotiate and can't say to uh, a company that they want to buy a product from, I'd like your product, but I don't want to agree to arbitrate. It's a take it or leave it kind of, uh, of a contract. And it's hard to imagine that there's really any voluntary consent to an arbitration clause that's inserted in, you know, in a click-through page on a website when you order goods or services online, for example. But the Supreme Court has expressed the view that if there's an arbitration agreement anywhere around, whether you can be said to consent to it in any meaningful sense or not, you're bound by it. And that's why I think the way the court has approached arbitration agreements is is very business friendly, because in the consumer context, there really is not any meaningful choice. I know I've asked you this many, many times before, but just explain how arbitration favors the large companies. So there's there's two or three principal advantages to a big company. One is that you don't have the ability to conduct broad discovery. So that prevents a plaintiff, any plaintiff, from from finding out enough information to be able to bring a claim successfully. Number two, you lose the right to a trial by jury. And that's a really important right, particularly for a consumer, because juries are there to try to even out any prejudice that's built into the system to favor the big guy over the little guy. And then the third big advantage is it is virtually impossible to appeal an arbitration award against you because the standard for appealing an arbitration award is so incredibly high, it's almost impossible to meet. It can almost never be met. And lots of times, arbitrators are part of the industry in which the big company works. Not always, but lots of times. Thanks, Mark. That's Mark Rifkin of Wolf Haldenstein. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.